Take your Bibles, you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. verse 9 down to verse 12 verse 9 down to verse 12 read having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to the purpose uh, sorry according to his good pleasure which hath purposed in himself and the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ but which are in heaven and which are on the earth even in him in whom also we have obtained inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you that we can come together in this place. We pray that, Lord, as we open up your word tonight, that you would be exalted. We pray, Father God, that you would indeed minister to us through your word. Lord, we pray that t tonight you would just allow your spirit to take your word and to apply it to our hearts, to encourage us, to build us up in the faith. Lord, I pray that you give me wisdom from on high, and Lord, help me to have uh, that uh, clarity of speech that might honor you, Father God, this night. Lord, we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray now as we come to your word that we'd rightly divide it for your glory. Lord, you bless our time together in your word now this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Frank Henrik uh, made this statement. He said, or as the source of all truth, God is in fact the highest truth we can study. Our view of him affects every other belief and practice. And with that in mind, what uh, we've been praying about doing is, uh, instead of doing Romans Sunday morning, Sunday night when I preach, praying and pastor and I have been talking about this that maybe we'll do I'll do Romans in the morning and then Sunday evenings might do something a little different so with that in mind with the statement from Frank Hamrick about the fact that God is the highest truth that we can study I would like for the next several Sunday nights however long it takes to explore the depths and the heights of God's majesty because while God lies above and beyond our understanding God has also chosen to make himself known unto us, and he did that for a reason. He wants us to know him so that we might be like him. And here is chapter 11 and verse 6. We read that we must accept two things about God. First, we must believe that he is. And that is that he exists. And secondly, you and I must remember that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. From this starting point, we can begin to study and understand a little bit about our almighty God described to us in scriptures. One person trying to explain that understanding of God made this statement. He said, like a little child walking alongside their father, we may not understand the height of God's holiness or the fullness of his grace, but we can feel the strength of his hand holding ours. I don't seek to claim to be able to tell you everything there is to know about God or even to understand fully 
who our God is because there's much about him that we don't understand and we don't know and some things are beyond our comprehension. But it is my desire over the next few Sunday nights when I get to preach to be able to share some truths about God that hopefully will encourage us and maybe answer some of the questions that we have in life. Some of the basic questions are, you know, what is our purpose in life? What goal are we striving to obtain? Or to put it a little more simply, why are we here? I mean, why do we have church? Why do we have Sun school? Why do we have youth ministries? Do we have them simply to entertain us? Do we have them simply to get everyone together for a good time? Are these ministries, these things that God has ordained, designed to keep us away from sinful places? Well, all that may be true to a certain degree, that's not what it's all about. The question we need to ask is, is it something else? What is it that God saved us for? Why did God create us and why did God save us? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12 helps answer those questions. And there's no doubt that the Lord saved us for a purpose. That's Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Just let me read these two verses again to, for you. It says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So there is no doubt that we're saved for a purpose. And that purpose is what I want us to consider today. As we embark upon this study of the character of God, I want us to understand why God created us. What was his purpose in saving us? You know, first of all, that we're saved that we might glorify God. He says that at the end of verse 12, he said, at the beginning of verse 12, he says that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. The chief end of man, the chief end of us who are saved, is that you and I would glorify God. The reason why God reveals himself to us is so that you and I might glorify God in our lives. This is Paul's claim here in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, Having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verses 11 and 12 we've already read. He says there that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted Christ. Then, back in, then down in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Three times in this first chapter of Ephesians, we're challenged as believers that God saved us for the praise of his glory. Thomas Watson said this, glorifying God has respect to all the persons of the Trinity. It respects God the Father who gave us his life. God the Son who lost his life for us. And God the Holy Spirit who produces new life in us. Because of this, before we do anything else, we should always ask ourselves the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? For as 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, Wherefore, therefore, you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. If we're doing any particular thing, and that thing will not glorify God, 
the truth is we shouldn't do it. Since man's purpose for being is glorifying God, we should always ask ourselves the question, is my purpose in my life to glorify God? Is that why I am living? Is that what I'm seeking to do? Each day that I get up, is it my desire of my heart to glorify God? Now let's consider verse 11 12 for a moment or two here. Paul tells in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 that those of us who are saved have been predestinated according to the purpose of his will. It says there in verse 11, in whom also we obtain an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God has a predetermined plan and a predetermined purpose for all who are saved. Now we know that God had a plan for the unsaved. God revealed that to us. God is not willing that any should perish, for all should come to repentance. We know that God's desire for mankind is that mankind recognize themselves as a sinner before a holy God and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. But God has also revealed to us that God has a plan and a purpose for us who are saved. In fact, he has a plan and a position for us who are saved as his children. That plan or that position is that we've obtained an inheritance. That's what he says at the beginning of verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. And we know the whom is back in verse 11. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. But which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. In whom in Christ also we have obtained an inheritance. It's interesting it says in whom. Also, we have obtained inheritance. You know, for you and I as believers, Jesus Christ is not our judge. But in him we have an inheritance. The idea here is that all who are saved are part of that inheritance. It's not just that you and I will inherit something, that you and I will receive an inheritance, but that you and I are part of that inheritance we are part of the inheritance promised to Jesus Christ. The God the Father has promised to Jesus Christ, His Son, an inheritance, and those of us who are saved are part of that inheritance. Because you don't have to remember that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, we're called joint heirs with Christ, which means that He cannot claim His inheritance apart from us. We're part of that inheritance, and we're joint heirs with the Savior. That's why in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, it continues, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. This promise of inheritance, that you and I have obtained inheritance, that you and I are joint heirs with Christ, that we are part of the inheritance of the Son is a predetermined plan of God. We are predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. God has determined in eternity past that all those who are saved will be joint heirs with Christ. That's God's promise to us. That's God's plan for us. That's the position that you and I have been placed in as believers. We're joint heirs with Christ. Somebody said, neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. God has predetermined 
that all who are saved should fulfill his will and plan. Ultimately, you and I will experience all that God has promised for us to experience. Therefore, Ephesians chapter 1 and 11 says, God predestined or before ordained that we should be assigned a wonderful position, joined heirs with Christ. Now that's a great promise. You and I have been promised this wonderful position. We're joined heirs with Christ. But more than that, God has also predetermined that we should have a wonderful purpose in Christ. God decided that all men should be saved, and that's his desire, that all men would be saved. And for all those who are saved, he has a plan, a position. We're joined heirs with Christ, but he also has a wonderful purpose for us. He predetermined purpose, and that is that he saved us to bring glory and praise to his name. Notice what it says, in whom we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. God's predetermined purpose for us is that you and I would be to the praise of his glory. Now the key word here is the word be. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. Because being is one of the three words that govern the Christian life. The other two words are knowing and doing. The word knowing, which we find throughout the New Testament, the word to know him, focuses on the facts and doctrine. You and I are to know God. We're to know about him. We're to know the doctrine of God. We know theology proper. And that's what we're going to look at over these Sunday nights, we're going to have a look at the character, the person of God. That we might know him. The second word is doing. And that focuses on the right actions. Our behavior. Witnessing. Studying. Praying. All the things that we do as believers. And being focuses on the inner qualities of holiness. And if you and I are going to do anything for the Lord, then you and I have to be, be what he wants us to be. And the only way we can be what he wants to be is when we know him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 tells of which of these three words is the most important. It says that you and I are to be, be to the praise of his glory. See, the Lord is more interested in what we are than what we know and what we do. True Christianity is not what we do, but what we are. It's all about being. And that's why Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says that we are to be to the praise of his glory, not to know his glory, not to do the praise of his glory, but to be the praise of his glory. Frank Hamrick said this, God is more concerned with our being. Knowing and doing are important, for there can be no being without knowing and no doing without being, but God is more concerned with our being. And the reason for that is this. 
that you and I can do right without being right. It's possible to do right without being right. But you and I cannot be right and not do right. If we are what we are to be, if we are what we should be, then we will do what God wants us to do. But we can do right without being right. This is illustrated by the Pharisees. They did almost everything right. In fact, they were probably the most outwardly righteous group of individuals that ever lived, particularly in the time of Christ. Now, when we some of the things the Lord said about the Pharisees, let's go back to Matthew 23. I thought Darren in the Sunday school this morning was going to take all my thunder when he turned to Matthew 23 to talk about the Pharisees. But he didn't. But I did think it was interesting. He was talking about the similar thing this morning in Sunday school. And, uh, you know, when you're praying about what to do next, you often wonder whether you've really found what God wants you to do. And then Darren gets up this morning and starts talking about the similar things. And I thought, well, praise the Lord, kind of fit together. And that's what the Lord says about the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He tells us that they studied the word of God diligently. Look in verse 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, sitting in Moses' seat didn't mean that they went to the tabernacle and found the seat that said Moses on it and they sat in his seat. Okay, That's what he's talking about here. It means that they sat down to study the book of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. They sat and studied. They were diligently studying the word of God. The Pharisees prayed publicly. Look in verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. They made long prayers. But we read elsewhere, they used to stand on the street corners and they would pray out aloud for all to hear. In fact, you knew the Pharisees were coming because they had bells on their garments and you could hear them arriving. You knew that the Pharisee was there and he would pray long prayers. For all intents and purposes, he prayed publicly. He looked godly. They even witnessed, look in verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. They compass sea and land to make proselytes. They were witnessing. They were great tithers. Look in verse 23. Weren't you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have admitted the weightier matters of the Lord, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. They gave of the mint and anise and cumin. They, they were great tithers. The Lord even said that they were outwardly clean. Look at verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whitest sepulchres, which are indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's stones and are of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, Within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. They appeared outwardly righteous. You know, if the Pharisees were around today, they would memorize scripture, they would go to church faithfully. If their, their children would go off to a Christian school, 
The, the Pharisee would read Christian books, they would tithe, they would pray, they would do all the things that Christians ought to do. And everyone in Christian circles would look up to them as godly men. In their day, they did much more than most Christians do today in their service of their God. And yet the Lord reserves for them his most stinging rebuke and his harshest condemnation. The Lord calls them fools, serpents, hypocrites, blind guides, a generation of vipers. Look in verse 29 of Matthew 23. Woe you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and guide the sepulchres of righteousness, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, and that your children of them that killed prophets fill ye up the measure of their fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? And if you read the whole chapter 23, he just condemns them over and over again. They were told that they were clean on the inside, or rather they were told if they were clean on the inside, then the outside would also be clean. Look in verse 26. Now blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. The Lord told them the problem the Pharisees had was not their works, not what they did. They were doing all the right things. The problem was that the inside was not clean. And the Lord said, get the inside right, get the inside clean, and once your heart is right, then the outside will follow. That's why God is more concerned with what we are than what we do. Because even as believers, we can be guilty of doing all the right things and still be unclean before God. You and I can become so busy doing and so focused on doing that we neglect the inner man. Romans 12.2 tells us that we're not conformed to this world but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we're to be strengthened in the inner man by his might. There is a need for the inner man to be right. We need to be first before you and I can do. Because if you and I are doing all this activity, but our hearts are not right with God, then it is pointless activity. That's why B is so important. Being, therefore, is the important thing. In the eyes of the Lord, it's what is in that counts not what's outside. Remember what the Lord said in 1 Samuel chapter 16? Let's go there. When they were looking for a new king, 1 Samuel 16. And verse 7. Verse 6 says, And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on his height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeketh 
as seeth, not as men seeth. For men looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. The Lord doesn't care about what we're doing as much as he cares about what we are. And what we are is we are to be to his glory. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. That's why you and I command in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 to be to the praise of his glory. Now if we are to be something, if being is important, if the most important thing as far as God is concerned for you and I believers is that we be to the praise of his glory, if God has planned that you and I be something, the question then is, what is that something? How do we become to the praise of his glory? How do we be to the praise of his glory? What does that mean? What does it mean to be the praise of his glory? I mean, that's why he saved us. He saved us so that we might be to the praise of his glory. But how do we then be to the praise of his glory? What is it that we are to be? Well, the answer is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you'll turn there, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. And verses 13 to 16. We read this. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you and the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be holy as I am holy. The challenge for you and I as believers, if we're going to be to the praise of his glory, then the challenge to us is for us to have personal and practical holiness. If we're going to be to the praise of his glory, then we need to be holy. As he is holy. We need to follow this command. And you know the amazing thing about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where it tells us to be holy in all manner of conversation, because written, be ye holy as I am holy, it's a command for you and I as believers with the expectation that you and I can be holy as he is holy. This is not, this is not just some, some pie-in-the-sky statement. God is commanding you and I that you and I be holy as he is holy, so that you and I might be to the praise of his glory. This is practical, this is personal holiness that he wants you and I to exercise. So the question then is, what is holiness? Well, one author said this, holiness, and the very concept of holiness, is something that is lost in today's culture and in the church itself, the very concept of God and his holiness has been dismissed. It's hard for us to understand what holiness is because that concept of holiness has been dismissed. We, we don't understand the concept in modern society. 
Another author said this, As a rule, the less we think of God, the better we think of ourselves. If God is the jolly good fellow we think he is, we have less to feel sorry for and nothing to fear. He goes on, The doctrines of holiness and sin either rise or fall together. What we do to one, we have done, whether, we know, whether knowingly or unknowingly to the other. As such, we as people and culture lower our view of God. If indeed we believe in him at all, God then becomes the great Santa Claus in the sky. Because of that, we've lost sight of what is holy and what holy lives look like. It's amazing, you know, we are commanded to be to the praise of his glory. That's why he saved us. To be to the praise of his glory. And how do we do that? By being holy as he is holy. But you and I have lost all our understanding in society, not you and I personally, but generally speaking, we've lost the concept of who God is. We don't understand the holiness of God, and therefore we do not understand what it means to be holy. If you and I are going to be holy as he is holy, then this needs to start with you and I understanding who God is. Understanding his person, understanding his character, understanding the very nature of God, and that's what my desire is over the next few Sunday nights, is to try and explain a little bit about who God is, that we might get an understanding of holiness. Because we're to be holy as he is holy. So what does holiness look like? If you and I are going to be holy so that we might be to the praise of his glory, then we need to understand what holiness looks like. We were told, aren't we, as unsaved people, that we have sinned and come short of his glory. We've fallen short of his standard, his holiness. But how many of us understand the character of God? How many of us really know what it means to be holy? I mean, today, if you compare those in the world and those in many churches, you can't find a difference between the world and the church. We can observe all around us whole Christian denominations falling away from the faith because they're striving to please and to accommodate the world rather than God. They're looking at what the world says the standard should be and the church believes that in order to survive, they've got to embrace the world. And now when you look at the church, you look at the world, you can't tell much difference between the two except one says this is the church, the other doesn't have a name. But what God wants for you and I is not to look at the world and mold ourselves according to the pattern of the world to look like the world. He wants you and I to look at God. And he wants you and I to live in his presence so that you and I might indeed reflect his holiness in our lives. That like Moses when he went up to the mount and received the Ten Commandments and he spent some time in the presence of the Lord when he came down, his face shone with the Shekinah glory and they had to put a veil over him because the brightness was so bright. That's what God wants for you and I. That we spend so much time in his presence that we become holy as he is holy so that we might be to the praise of his glory so that when people look at us what they see is God they see his glory they see his uh, uh, omnipotence they see his majesty they see God in us 
that we're different from the world. That's what God wants for us, to be holy. The question for us is who, is going to, who are we going to let set the standards by which we, as God's people, live? Are we going to let the world set the standard by which we live? Are we going to let the God who saved us set the standard by which we live? Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and 16 gives us this call to holiness. This is what God wants for you and me. He wants you and I to be holy as he is holy. Notice again what he says in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, not fashioning yourselves to the world, but as he hath called you as holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in all the walks of life, because it is written, Be holy as I am holy. The Greek word, all right, I should say this first. Frank Hamrick explains what holiness is. He puts this the definition as holiness is the inward progressive work of the Holy Spirit through Christ of setting apart the believer to God. Holiness is the progressive work of God in us where the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit sets us apart unto God. The Greek word for holy is the word hagios. And it's translated as sanctified. It means to be set apart. And in the context of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, it means to be set apart unto God from sin, from the world. From hagios we get the word saints, meaning those who are set apart. So you and I are saints, we're set apart unto God, and you and I are to be holy as he is holy. We are to be set apart from sin, from the world, unto God. And you and I cannot be holy unless we're set apart to God. We cannot be holy unless we spend time getting to know God. One author said, holiness is the product of knowing God, and it produces doing his will. If you and I want to be holy as he is holy, so that we might be to the praise of his glory, then you and I have got to know our God. Got to get to know him. Darren mentioned that this morning in Sunday school. That's how we become what God wants to be, by knowing him. And as we know him, we'll become like him, and we will be holy, and we will be to the praise of his glory. We're called upon to be holy, to allow God to fulfill his purpose in us. We're not here, beloved, to live out our purpose in our lives. But God saved us so that we might live out his purpose day by day. We are to live to the praise of his glory. And we'll only do that as we are holy, as he is holy. As you and I are set apart unto God, then you and I will be able to be to the praise of his glory. 
Christ died that we, he might provide the way for us to be sanctified, to set apart. He redeemed us to be holy. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians chapter 5. Commence verse 25. I know that we quote this passage as the husband-wife passage, but it's actually talking about Jesus Christ too. In fact, there's some important truths here about our relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So Christ died for us. Why did he die for us? Why did he give himself for us? Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. That's the church. That's you and I as believers might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Why? That he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ died. And Christ saved you and I so that he might present to himself a glorious church that has no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, but instead it is holy without blemish. Christ died and saved you and I to set you and I apart unto God. He died so that you and I might be sanctified. He died so that you and I might be holy. He redeemed us so that you and I might live, we might be to the praise of his glory. Now think about that. Christ didn't primarily come to break the bonds of sin. As far as you and I are concerned, when he saved us, the reason why he saved us was to restore our holiness. To bring us back into fellowship with him. To bring us back into relationship with him. So that you and I might be to the praise of his glory by being holy. We need to understand we are redeemed. Not primarily from sin but unto God. And inner holiness ought to be our goal. That's what we should be. We should be Holy. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 13 to 15, before we get to the verse 16 where it says, Be ye holy as I am holy, those first few verses of that section explain that we must know in order to be and we must be in order to do. Because as obedient, uh, verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, We've got to know some things. We've got to gird up the loins of our minds. Our minds have got to be thinking on Christ. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We've got to know something. We've got to know our God. And so we need to gird up the loins of our minds. We need to be sober. We need to hope to the end for grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? We do this as obedient children, not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts, in your ignorance, we don't know so that we might be, and we are to be so that we might be, we might do, that we might indeed do what verse 15 says, but as he hath called you as holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation, that we might live holy lives. Frank Hamrick says this, he says, knowing is essential to being. We've got to know God if we're going to be holy.
And as I said, my desire is over the sunny nights, uh, however long it takes, I want us to take, take a glimpse, take a, 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 try and understand a little bit about our God, what holiness looks like. So that you and I as believers, as we look into the word of God, we might see a holy God. We might understand what holiness looks like. And then as we have our understanding changed, as we start to know him, we might become like him. That we might live for him. Man must know God to be what God wants him to be. Purpose, God's purpose for us is that we be holy as He is holy, that we might be to the praise of His glory. God is concerned that we do right, but He also wants our motives to be right. He wants us to do right because we are right, because our hearts are right, because our hearts are are where they ought to be because our knowledge of him, the knowledge of God, has changed the way that we think so that we change what we are, so we live a life that brings glory to him. He's not so much interested in what we do as to why we do it. Our holiness is the result of God's grace in our lives. He sanctifies us so that Others might get a glimpse of his character, a glimpse of his love, his truth and mercy. People need to be able to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. They ought to see that we are different. You see, you and I ought to be walking that close to God that we shine with his glory. We shouldn't be walking so close to the world that our clothes smell like smoke because we're getting so close to the fire. But how often is it that what people see in us is simply a reflection of what's in the world? They don't see a reflection of the holiness of God. But God saved us that we might be holy, so that we might be to the praise of his glory, so that people might see Christ in us, that they might be drawn to the Savior. The challenge for us is to maintain our personal relationship with the Lord so that he might fulfill that purpose in us. That you and I might be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Father, for the challenge of Ephesians, that we're to be to the praise of your glory. And if we're going to be to the praise of your glory, then we need to be holy as you are holy. And we'll only be holy as we get to know a holy God. So Lord, I do pray that as we look at a little bit about who you are over the next Sunday nights that I get the opportunity to preach, that Lord, we might get a glimpse of our holy God, that each of us might be made a little bit more like you, that people might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, because indeed we are living testimonies for you, because we are being to the praise of your glory. Commend your word to hearts, now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.